we are going through the Gospel of Mark. It's a biography of Jesus, and we are in chapter 11, uh, which is part of, it's actually the last week of Jesus' life uh, before he is crucified and rises again, and so it's a pretty uh, intense time. It's a, it's a charged atmosphere, and so what we're going to look at this morning is these two episodes. Uh, it's really kind of one uh, extended one, uh, but the kind of two there. There's a question that is asked of Jesus by his opponents, and we'll see what prompted that question. And then after that question, Jesus gives them that parable. Uh, it's a parable of judgment and vindication, really. Uh, and by the end of it, they're like, man, I think this is against us. And it's like, okay, guys, uh, pretty sharp there. You'll get that in a second. But really, over the next few weeks, you see the title here, the Q&A with Jesus part one about authority. The next three, today and a couple weeks after that, uh, there's an extended, really, Q&A with Jesus uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, so he, he gets asked a question here, he gets a couple more questions uh, on the next day, and then he asks a question in return. And so you can learn a lot, you know, about uh, a person, who they are, and their biography, and things like that through a Q&A, and that's really what we're going to see over the next few weeks, an extended Q&A with Jesus. And so what prompts this first question? in regard to Jesus's authority. And really, there's two events, and we discussed it last week, but just to give you a little bit of review and context, and if you're new here this morning, to kind of bring you up to speed. There's two things that Jesus did that have uh, provoked this question. His arrival in Jerusalem and the subsequent action he took in the temple were definitely provocative, okay? So to conspicuously ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was uh, a well-known prophecy about the coming Messiah. So most people would have been walking. Jesus would have been elevated on a donkey and to approach Jerusalem in fulfillment of a well-known prophecy. During Passover, (laughs) which was the time when the Jewish people were celebrating and remembering their liberation from the oppression of Egypt, and here they are under the oppression of Rome. So to do that donkey riding into Jerusalem in fulfillment of prophecy at Passover, and the people around, lots of pilgrims making their trek to Jerusalem, shouting, Son of David, Hosanna to the Son of David, which is a messianic title, uh, is provocative. (laughs) Okay? That's going to get a response. Okay? And, by the way, don't forget that Jesus is doing that while there is a sitting king actually in Jerusalem. (laughs) I mean, can you feel that a little bit? Like, having a throng of people announce that you're the king? (laughs) You're like this 33-year-old upstart Jewish rabbi. (laughs) That's who Jesus is. That's all the apparent chops that he has. Herod is like, who is this guy? Not to mention, Rome is like a bloodhound. Rome Rome is like, they're always trying to sniff out insurrection and put it down in the first century. And so to ride in that publicly is, in a sense, an assault to the Jewish kind of puppet king. It's an assault to Rome. And then there's a whole host that we're going to meet in a few minutes of Jewish religious aristocracy that are very good at keeping their power and putting out anyone else who would try to get it. So Jesus does all of that on Sunday 
leading into his final week. Someone said to me last week after church, it's like he took the gloves off. Absolutely. Okay? If you read the biography up until this point, when people try to assign him the title of Messiah, he keeps on you know, shushing them and keeping it down because he knows it's going to be misunderstood. Well, it's still going to be misunderstood, but now it's time to declare it anyway. So that's the first thing he does, and that's not even the most provocative. <laughs> that's a, what he does after that, the next morning, when he goes into the temple and he pronounces judgment on the whole temple. Okay, when, you know, traditionally called the cleansing of the temple. That's not what was happening. That was a prophetic enactment. He was acting as a prophet, acting out his message. And as a prophet, he was saying, this temple is so corrupt that God is going to come and judge it. And to announce that, he drives out the money changers, you know, kicking over and throwing over tables. John says he's got a whip. He's driving the sellers and the livestock out of the court of the Gentiles there in the temple. <laughs> While he's doing it, he's comparing the current nation to another point in their history with the prophet Jeremiah, who there was a different temple at that time, and Jeremiah said, this nation is so corrupt, God's going to destroy this temple. <laughs> and Jesus says, you're just like them. <laughs> so he's like kicking over tables, driving out animals, while he's like multitask prophet here. He's also uh, co correlating it to Jeremiah. And he's also indicting them to fail up to live to God, uh, because they failed to live up to God's purpose to be a light to the nations. You're doing all this buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles. And you're abusing and oppressing the poor. Remember he talked about the pigeon offering, which was the, the offering for the poor. It was supposed to be a democratic place of worship where everyone could come. And they were making it, they were making religion elitist. And so Jesus drives them out. So that's kind of like a historical thing. Maybe there's a little bit of a hard time connecting with that. So I, I try to thought, okay, how can I try to help us 21st century people here in the United States feel that a little bit more? What was the temple like? The temple was like the center and heart of the nation. Now, not everybody, just, for, just to be historically accurate here, so that you guys you know, don't think I'm like missing something. There were some Jews that didn't want anything to do with the temple. They thought it was corrupt, and they had gone to the hills, and they were waiting for a different temple, too. They were called the Essenes. So there was a minority of people in the Jewish nation that didn't acknowledge that temple either. And they were probably happy Jesus was doing what he's doing. Anyway, most of the Jews, your, your John and Jane Doe Jew, okay, they loved and revered the temple. It was the heart of their nation. It was the religious center, of course. And so here comes Jesus in there, and he pronounces judgment on the religious center of the nation. That would be similar. The kind of reaction that that might get is if I were to announce here this morning that there's no more freedom of speech and there's no more freedom of religion in the United States. It's like, well, somebody guessed. <laughs> Taking away that religious freedom would get you guys riled up a little bit. There'd be a couple of Facebook posts. <laughs> Did you hear what he said, church? No more freedom of religion. Jesus condemned their religious practices. It was also the economic center 
The banking was held there. The registries were held there. The property deeds were held there. All that stuff was at the temple. And so it was the, the center of the economy. And so that's the equivalent of like our free markets, our banking, uh, our 401ks, the investments, the stock exchange. Jesus is coming and he's going to upset that entire economic system. And so again, if you're here and maybe you're a little older and you got some, you know, some savings locked away and all this stuff and you're depending on the market and you're hoping that it goes well and Jesus comes in and just says the whole thing's going to be rearranged by me. You'd be like, well, is, is my stuff okay? <laughs> Are we good? <laughs> That's what Jesus is doing. Religious center, economic center. Of course, it's the social and the political center as well. And so there's always a tenuous relationship at that time between the Rome who occupied Israel and, and the, uh, the temple that the Jewish people ran. And so that, that relationship there, and Jesus is saying, all of that is now going to be under my authority. And so now, maybe that gives, I don't, I don't know how much that helps. I hope it helped a little bit. Otherwise, it was a waste of three minutes. But anyway, help you feel what Jesus was actually doing. And so I think if you can see that, then their first question about authority <laughs> just makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> Who do you think you are? I mean, it'd be the equivalent of going to, like, the Supreme Court, the Capitol Building, Wall Street, the Bill of Rights. Jesus, who do you think you are to be just rearranging all of that under your own authority? Who are you? Which, it just makes me laugh a little bit. I feel like up here I'm saying similar things week by week. It's like, this is about Jesus' identity. This is about Jesus' identity. And Mark keeps pressing the issue. Who are you? And so, Jesus has had no problem answering that question in the past. In fact, a similar group of folks from Jerusalem had come out to Galilee when he was um, at the paralytic house. You remember that? Back in chapter 2? It's my favorite stories in the Bible. I always, I take it, if I get a chance to tell it, I'll tell it in a minute or two, and here it is. Jesus in Galilee, and this, there's a guy who's paralyzed, and he's got great friends. Four of them, in fact. They bring him to Jesus. The room is too packed, and so they drop him through the ceiling. I mean, get yourself some friends like that. Amen? Friendship goals. <laughs> so he's, he's halfway down the ceiling, and Jesus looks at him and goes, your sins are forgiven. And all the friends are like, that's not why we brought him. <laughs> you know, he's paralyzed Jesus. And so these opponents who were are, who are present here and who were present back then, they say, well, who does this, this guy think he is that he can forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to this paralytic, rise up and walk. The guy gets up and walks out the house. Now that's a church Sunday. <laughs> so when he's asked about where his authority comes from, he's had no problem like answering that question. Later on in the gospel, as we read through, there's other times where they've asked and he's given a theological answer. Here, again, in a sense, I don't mean this like in any kind of like, colloquial or, or too casual kind of a way, but, but the gloves are off for Jesus now. They're asking, where do you get this authority from? And he's like, I've answered that, I've answered that, I've answered that. And so instead of giving them an answer here, he says, well, I'm going to ask you a question, which actually was an acceptable rabbinical debate technique. That was, so he wasn't being overtly disrespectful, but he was like, hey, I've been asked this before, let me ask you a question now. And so he asked them a question. And he says, 
is the baptism of John from heaven legitimate, authoritative, or is it from man? And it's like, whether you're in the first century or the 21st century, everybody has a category for, yeah, there's something divine going on here that I should listen to, and there's also such a thing as, you know, uh, religious tomfoolery that's just man-made. And Jesus puts it back on these religious leaders and says, where was this baptism from? And, you know, as it was read by Sister Beth this morning, it's, it's so interesting. They, like, kind of must have had this, like, huddle off to the side <laughs> to discuss it. And what's interesting about these religious leaders in particular, you had the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. That, was, that made up the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, which was their political body. They didn't usually get along with everything. They weren't always united in their views on stuff. There were, some, there were Sadducees that didn't believe in a resurrection. They were the, the Pharisees who did believe in a resurrection. And the elders were uh, laymen, business affluent people that would have been appointed to that position. And so they had different beliefs and values even within the Sanhedrin. They didn't always agree. But interestingly, they all came together. And that, that group that didn't normally agree on stuff, they were united in the fact that this young rabbi is a threat to all of us. So I think that's important for us to recognize because, again, sometimes I think, you know, if you're in and around the church, you know, maybe too much. Did you get that? You can be in and around the church too much. You get, well, apparently you guys don't think so, so come more often. Anyway. <laughs> what Jesus did and accomplished seems real commonplace. These guys understood really clearly the stuff he's saying and the stuff he's doing will literally turn the world upside down. They got it. And we're not down with that. So, they get together in their little huddle over there, and they say, well, we can't say it's from John, or we can't say John is from heaven, because we never really followed him. Remember, John was the he was the crazy guy in the wilderness. And they're the sophisticated, religious, political elite. Okay? They never got down with John. But they also weren't true men and women of God. Because true men and women of God don't fear men. If you're truly a person of God, that means your greatest allegiance and trust and confidence and reverence or fear is God alone. And it says here multiple times, this group of leaders cared too much what the mob thinks. So they weren't true leaders, spokesmen for God. Now, Jesus' question here isn't just a gotcha moment. You know, they went with the whole agnostic, you know, the, the sophisticated, we don't know. We'll get back to you. You know, whatever. <laughs> Jesus asked that question about John it wasn't just a, I want to trip them up type thing, although it did do that. And it definitely caused them to be embarrassed, for sure. But that wasn't the only thing Jesus was doing there. He was, the answer actually to that question would have answered theirs. Their question is, where's your authority come from? And he says, well, what do you think about John? Why does he say that? Because John was the forerunner for Jesus. John was the one who had authority, who had influence, and he was from, the, from heaven, so to speak. His authority came from heaven. But John himself said, 
the one who's coming after me is mightier than I. And I'm not even worthy to tie his shoes. And so Jesus is basically saying, if you say John is from heaven, which you should, and John said, me, the one coming after John, is even greater. And so that question about John was actually very relevant. If you accept John's um, ministry and authority, then you certainly should have accepted Jesus's. But they don't want that because they feel like it's a threat to their position and to their power. And in one sense, it definitely was. You know, is, is coming to Jesus safe? You know, that's a classic thing from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in Narnia. You know, they talked about Aslan, who was a lion that represented Christ. And I think it was Lucy asked, is he safe? And one of the creatures in Narnia says, oh, no one ever said anything about being safe. But he is good. That's what Jesus is like. If you come to Jesus, <laughs> well, I, I'll give you one more example. I used to do this uh, ministry with FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and I used to get to talk to a lot of students up in Smyrna, football, basketball players, and I used to tell them this. You can never change enough to come to Jesus. But if you come to Jesus, you're going to change. So if you don't want change, <laughs> then don't come to Jesus. And that's what these religious leaders were, they knew. They knew that to embrace Jesus' authority meant a, a tremendous change. But the real issue is, is it a change for the better or a change for the worse? And as believers in Christ, we know that actually surrendering to the authority of Jesus is a change only for the good. And they could only see it as negative. So, this is the first little episode here. It's the first question of the Q&A of Jesus and his opponents. And so before we look at that next episode, let me just say uh, a couple of things about Jesus' authority. Number one, and we, we read this already in uh, previous weeks, Jesus' authority actually is from heaven. In Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the biography, in verse 9, in those days Jesus of Nazareth came from Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And so literally, is John from heaven? Is Jesus' authority from heaven? Literally, Mark chapter 1 says, yes, it is. And then in Mark chapter 9, in verse 7, which, by the way, the baptism was probably a public event. This right here is a more private event, the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John, some of his closest followers are there with him. Moses and Elijah have appeared in glorious garments, and so is Jesus transfigured into glorious garments. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. And now, see the connection. Listen to him. So the beloved Son comment there comes from Psalm 2, which is a predictive psalm about how the Lord's anointed will be King of all the kings and Lord of all the Lord. That's Psalm 2. So the Father is anointing and investing 
Jesus as his son with that kind of authority, and then the father says, listen to him, as opposed to listen to Moses, or listen to Elijah, or listen to any other voice that might be out there. Because of who Jesus is, his anointing by the father, his character and his nature, listen to him. And so here's my, here's my question for you. Who are you listening to? Who's the source of authority in your life? Is it your own heart, your own desires, your own mind? Is it fear of man like these people here? The authority for them, they wanted to do something, but the real authority was their position and their pride and their place amongst the community. Who are you listening to? You know, experts, which by the way, Jesus isn't opposed to experts in things, so long as they're not contradicting his vision, his value, his morals. And, and when you look at Jesus' authority throughout this Gospel of Mark, I mean, his authority is comprehensive. Let me say this. You want to know who's really authoritative in your life? There's one reality that has authority over every single person in this room. You know, we sang earlier, he's the only one who remains undefeated. Okay? There's one other reality that is almost undefeated. It's, you know, eight billion and one. And that reality is death. Death has authority over all of us. In fact, in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says that death reigns. <laughs> death rules. Death doesn't care about your schedule. I'm, I'm too busy right now. <laughs> death doesn't give a rat's rear about your schedule. <laughs> doesn't care about your family and your relationships. has authority. Except for one. There's one guy who beat death. His name is Jesus. And now he, in Revelation 1, says he holds the keys of death and hell. He's got authority over that. And so it's like, who are you going to listen to? Even all of the the collective wisdom of the human race, and it's impressive what the human race has accomplished, and yet death still reigns. Who are you listening to? I'm going to listen to the one who beat death. What's awesome? Well, I'll get ahead of myself. So when we talk about this issue of authority, who are you listening to? The second question is, how is Jesus' authority actually intersecting with your life? How does it actually get to you? Okay, Jesus is the one who has authority. He's God's son. He's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the son of David. All that. Okay, even if you agree with all of that, how does Jesus' authority actually, day in and day out, engage you? And so I think the answer to that question is, the most faithful witness 
reliable witness that we have to the life and person of Jesus is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the ancient documents that most faithfully and accurately record the life of Jesus. And so we get to listen to Jesus through, again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This morning we're, we're doing Mark. And then you say, well, what about the rest of the Bible? Don't worry about it. No, I'm just kidding. That's, just relax, everyone, okay? Just relax. Jesus says the whole Old Testament was written to testify about me. So you can't just interpret the Old Testament any way you want. You have to read it the way Jesus did. So, for example, here he quotes Psalm 118. If you read Psalm 118, you might not immediately think that's about Jesus, but Jesus actually says, nope, that's about me. So you need to learn to read the Old Testament in light of Jesus. And that's how it becomes authoritative in your life. And then the rest of the New Testament, after, after Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are the apostles whom Jesus invested his authority and said, you will have the keys of the kingdom. And so as the apostles began to die off, they wrote down the authoritative tradition of Jesus. There's your Bible, Old and New Testaments, the authority of Jesus. And so, you know, this behooves you. <laughs> That's a great word. To know what the Bible actually says. To wrestle through it. It, it takes, you know, time. And, I mean, I've grown in my understanding over years. And things I thought were right at one time, I, I don't necessarily think that anymore. And, and we learn and we grow and we're committed. And, and so you, you seek to understand the Bible not in isolation. Okay, this is really important. You can't just walk around going, Jesus told me this and Jesus told me that. It's like, I would ask you, who do you think you are? This was once for all delivered to the saints. And so you interpret the Bible in light of a wider Christian tradition, in light of history, in light of current things, and, and you do it humbly and patiently. And that all, friends, is just a way of saying you should seek to learn and grow in your understanding of the Bible in the church. <laughs> Very simply, right? With other Christians. I made that a lot more harder than it needed to be, but that's what I mean. So how does Jesus' authority actually interact with your life? It happens as you engage this Bible Christocentrically, centered on Christ, listening for his voice. What is Jesus telling me about my schedule? Seek first the kingdom of God. Okay, write that down. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them whatever I have commanded you. What does Jesus say about my schedule? What does Jesus say about my uh, family? What does Jesus say about my money? What does Jesus say about the people of God? What does Jesus say about government? What does Jesus say about my speech? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Embrace the authority of Jesus in your life. There's no greater authority. And by the way, one last thing before we go, and I've spent way too long on point one, so I'll be cognizant of that point two. We'll try to keep it tight. I got somewhere to be. So do you. <laughs> this unique authority that Jesus has over our world, he could literally have done anything with his authority that he wanted to do, and what did he do with his authority? He laid it down. That's actually what he's doing here. He's actually pressing the issue of his authority, 
knowing that they're going to reject him and that they're going to kill him, and he's going to allow that to happen because in being crucified for our sins, he will set us free. So friends, I would just encourage you to embrace the authority of Jesus. There is no greater authority. And look how he used his authority for your sake. And by the way, one other quick application. If you're in a position of authority, which all of us are in one sense or another, how does the authority of Jesus, the way he exercised it, redefine how we should be exercising our authority? If Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth, and he literally divested himself of that for the good of others around him, then to whatever degree you have any authority in any sphere, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you should be using that authority to lift all the other people up around you. That's what he said in Mark chapter 10. You don't come to be served, but to serve. So Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. These guys were starting to get it, but they didn't fully get it. The second episode, just to summarize that, is an agricultural example of uh, which would have been very common in that day. You'd have a wealthy landowner who would have lived quite a bit of ways away from the land that he owned. And he would lease that land out, and there would be uh, tenants and renters, servants there that would work it. And every so often, he would come and collect the rent. They, he got the benefit of the rent, and they got the benefit of some of the fruits of their labor and a place to live and all that type of thing. And so Jesus uses that analogy, and there's a, a vineyard. He's definitely picking up Old Testament themes from Isaiah chapter 5, where the vineyard is actually Israel. And so you've got the landowner who represents God. You've got the vineyard that represents God's blessing and favor. And then you've got the tenants and the servants, and they're the opponents of Jesus. That's who they are in this kind of allegory parable, right? And so what they do, uh, you know, the father sends a servant, and they beat the servant and don't give him any rent. And then he sends another one, they beat a servant, doesn't give him any rent. One mentions it, it says they hit him on the head. That's probably at least a little bit of a tip of the hat to John the Baptist, who was decapitated in Mark uh, 6 or 7, I think. And so servant after servant after servant comes, and they either beat him or kill him. And then the father finally says, you know what? I'll send my son, my one and only beloved son. I'll send him, and they'll respect him, and I'll get the payment that I'm due, and we can keep this vineyard thing going. And the son shows up, and the servants are like, this is the heir. Let's kill him, and then we can get the vineyard. Now, you might be thinking, that doesn't make any sense. Why in the world would those guys think, after mistreating all of the master's servants and then killing the son, that they'd actually get the vineyard? Well... One of three things quickly. Either one, you know, there's a, there was a Jewish law there that if after four years rent was never collected by the landowner, that land became like free and available. So maybe they've extended this no rent thing by killing and beating everybody so long they figured they'd get it that way. Or maybe they figured this is just an absentee landowner who's impotent and maybe he's even dead and now he's sending his son to get the inheritance. You kill the son, the father's already dead, we'll get the thing. A lot of commentators think that. <laughs> the commentators, I think, are right, are the ones that say, these people are just crazy. <laughs> They're just wicked and evil, and evil doesn't make a lot of sense. So, that's what they think. Of course, the father does show up, 
He's not absent. He's not impotent. Evaluates. He comes, evaluates, judges and punishes them, and then gives the, the ownership, the stewardship of that vineyard to new leadership. And then Jesus says, the stone that was rejected becomes the most important stone. Hmm, I wonder who gets new ownership of God's people. Well, I'll tell you who. It's Jesus and, his, and the disciples. And then they, 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 the end of it, which I already chuckled about, they're like, hmm, I think this was about us. <laughs> it's like the only parable they get is this one right here, and they got it. So that's a, just a, a brief recounting of that. So what's, again, this is still about authority. It's still about God the Father's authority. Obviously the Son in the parable represents Jesus. He's called the Beloved Son, which we've already read the passages where the Father calls Jesus the Beloved Son. So what does this parable teach us? I think it teaches us three things in conclusion. Number one, this teaches us about human nature. The essence of rebellion against God is not simply... God says do X, and I don't do X. I break the rules. That's definitely part of it. But the essence of rebellion against God is this. You want all of the stuff that God has made without, again, back to the issue, God's authority. That's exactly what they're doing. We want the vineyard and all the blessings and benefits of the vineyard, we don't want this master making us pay some rent. I mean, literally, that's all they had to do. I'd be like, bro, just pay the rent. <laughs> they didn't want it. It reminds us, if you're familiar with the story of Scripture, of the Garden of Eden, right? All the blessings of Eden, the fruit, the bounty, the beauty, the river of life, the gold, the precious stones, all of it there. And then it's like, well, that's not sufficient enough. I want to be God. I want to call all the shots. And now why this is important is because what this does is this shows us that our human nature, I mean, we all kind of do this in different ways, all right? <laughs> These people were doing it. They were very religious, kind of, quote, unquote, moral, upstanding people. These Jewish religious leaders certainly thought they were acceptable and doing the right thing, and God must be blessing me because I'm in this position, and Jesus comes along and says, no, you're absolutely 100% wrong about that. You're building your life all around what you want, and you're picking and choosing how you want God's authority to intersect with your life. That's the definition of human rebellion. It can look very good very religious and very moral, and yet still be rebellion. We're familiar with the other kind of rebellion, you know, the kind that, like, disobeys all of God's commands. You know, I forget who said it, but it was some preacher, not originally with me. I've used it before. It's like, you know, the glitz or the, or, or the gutter. You can be rebellious in a glitzy way, <laughs> or you can be rebellious in the gutter way, but either way, you're trying to build your life apart from the authority of God. This parable teaches us that that's really at the core of what human rebellion is about. And what's so insidious about it is at times, is like, I'll take a little bit of this Jesus' authority, and I'll take a little bit of that of Jesus' authority, but there's not a comprehensive recognition that he's the king, I do whatever he says. So we learn a lot about human nature in this parable. The second thing we learn a lot about is the nature of God. 
And this is so cool. This is such good news. You know, we kind of stopped to make a point about he sent servant after servant after servant. They got beat, they got killed, they got beat, they got killed. Finally, he decides to send his son. It's like, is that landowner nuts? <laughs> Did he actually think it was going to go well by sending the son? So what we see here is we see the amazing grace and forbearance of God. This is a picture of God's dealing with the nation of Israel and how over and over and over again he sent them servant, prophet, priest, king, judge, all of these leaders. And one by one they didn't listen. Remember how I told you that Jesus compared their temple to the temple of Jeremiah and he called it a den of robbers? That's in Jeremiah 7. Listen to what Jesus says, or what Jeremiah says, a few verses later in Jeremiah 7. This is God speaking. However, I did not give them this command. I did give them this command. Obey me, and then I will be your God, and you will be my people. Follow every way I command you, so that it may go well with you. Yet they did not listen or pay attention, but followed their own advice and their own stubborn, evil heart. They went backward, not forward. Since the day of your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today... I have sent all my servants, the prophets, to you time and time again. However, my people would not listen to me or pay attention, but became obstinate, and they did more evil than their ancestors. That was in Jeremiah's day, 600 years before Jesus came, and nothing has changed, and Jesus is saying time after time after time after time after time, I sent these people to you. You did not listen. One, that shows you the stubbornness of the human heart, but two, it shows you the gracious pursuit of God. Until one day, he finally sends his one and only son. And even he is rejected. But in his rejection, <laughs> it becomes our salvation. Amen? And so we learn a lot about the nature of God, how long-suffering and how patient he is. I would throw this out there. Maybe you're here. There's a lot of people here today. I don't know. And a lot of you I do. I don't know everything you're going through. Do you feel that with the Lord? Has he been coming time and time and time? And you can look back in your life and say, oh yeah, he was there. Revelation 3 says Jesus is knocking at the door of your heart. He's knocking. He's knocking. He's knocking. So we see the incredible, long-suffering grace of God. At the same time, we also see the justice and the judgment of God, right? Because at the end of the parable, what happens to those servants who beat the other servants and killed them? They're judged. And so we see God's nature, again, on full display here, which is going to be on full display. This is Tuesday, so by Friday, you're going to see really the fullness of God's grace and truth at the cross. You're going to see God's justice and truth and that Jesus is being judged and punished, but you're going to see his grace and his love and his mercy because he's not being judged for his sins, he's being judged for yours. Our God is full of grace and truth, and this parable clearly shows that to us. And the last thing is, is the mission of Jesus. Jesus becomes the chief cornerstone. Commentators are split. Does that mean he's the foundation stone or the capstone? We're not exactly sure. It could probably go either way. But what we do know is that he means it to be the most important stone. And the most important stone of what? This new temple, this new way of being the people of God. It's not going to be in a building anymore. 
It's going to be in the person of Jesus and through the gift of Jesus' spirit. And the work of Jesus is inaugurating that new temple. Jesus wasn't scared of these guys. He's like, I'm the son of the parable. I'm going to die. Yep, no big deal. And I'm also the stone that the builders rejected. I'm going to rise again and be vindicated and launch God's new world. He wasn't scared. He was just telling you the plan. He'd been telling them the plan all along. This is the fourth time in like the past three months, according to their timetable, he's told them the plan. He's going to be vindicated and rise again and start God's new world and God's new temple. You know, that whole cornerstone thing is so great because it's like all those religious leaders were, they're, they're, he changes the illustration from agriculture to architecture. And they're thinking about how they're going to build God's building and, and maintain God's building and all of that. And they look at all the leaders that are out there and they look at Jesus and they specifically go, nope, that's not the kind of stone we need. And they reject him, kill him, throw him out. And that stone that was rejected, killed, three days later, rises from the dead. And God the Father says, that's the most important stone. And 1 Peter 2 says that everyone that's connected to that stone by faith becomes a living stone. And now we are the product of Jesus' vindication. The fact that New City Church exists is a testimony that Jesus did rise from the dead. He is alive, and his church is expanding all over the world. Jesus has been vindicated, and that's going to continue going. So, friends, they want to know about Jesus' authority. I hope you do, too.